I want to start with a really fascinating thing, which is, um, you know, we're learning Musa now, and, and sometimes one thinks, you know, what's the, what's the value? What's the value of Muslim? It's actually, you know, historically there's a lot of, there was a lot of at the time, a lot of contention about Musa and introducing into the shivers or not. So I recently, this is like, this is like just, it couldn't, it couldn't actually get better. It couldn't get better. Um, there's a, a very respectable rabbi that wrote an article about how Musa is, is, is really something that is not the way to go. It's all about keeping halacha. And one has to focus on keeping halacha. That's, that's the way that, you know, he brings from the Chazanesh. And that's the way to go. Musa is not the way to go. Um, and he gives an example. He says, once I was in Osamech, and there was this young man, he says, the young man, and I'm thinking to myself, whoa, I know that guy. And he explains about how this guy was amazing. Because he used to spend all his time just learning Musa. Uh, sorry, just learning halacha. No interest in Musa, just learning halacha. And then he says, once he came over to me and he asked a question about a spoon that he touched liquid with and he was worried that he hadn't washed his hands. And I said to him, but why don't you just wash your hands? And he said, because, um, because how could he move forward without knowing the halacha? And this rabbi in his article like, praises how this guy was like the perfect example of how through halacha you get everything. Um, what he didn't realize is that this guy um, was unfortunately not emotionally stable. And his, his devotion to halacha was a symptom of his um, imbalance of self. And tragically, now he's not at all from. And every, I think every Rebbe, certainly for me, it was blatantly obvious that this guy was a time bomb. But this rabbi who doesn't believe in Musa, saw this person, had an interaction, and all the symptoms of emotional distress, he praised for halachic vigilance. And not only that, but he used it as a proof of halach is the basis of the building of a healthy self. And not only that, that was his proof how you don't need Musa. So for me, it was the most brilliant description of how if you don't have Musa and you don't understand the depth and the subtleties of the human mechanism and you focus on halacha, I can be the most destructive thing. But I thought it was just phenomenally, deliciously ironic how within his own article, he completely disproved his entire premise. It was... I, was just, I just want to understand the tunnel's reactions there. Like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think the tunnel... You're not the only one. Yeah, the tunnel was a. Uh, I don't know if he was like looking at something completely unrelated, or he was just as happy as I was about this. Uh, this insight looks like uh, as happy, amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that, that that's why that's why we need to spend time on this, uh, on 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 understanding how we work, because you know, like like Rabbi Saul would often say that a person who hasn't worked on himself and understood his inner motivations and workings, he can literally be championing with his entire gusto and, you know, might, the cause of right and good. And it's based on one small distortion in self. And um, he's actually holding up a big sheriff saying that this is Tahar. And that's actually the analogy that Rebbe Shah uses. So 
you know, I think we're all fallible to our, to our um, inner workings and Musa is at least an attempt to get a little bit of self-awareness which can assist us in moving forward as over Hashem. Let's go back to our topic after that exciting introduction. And we're talking about the power of Seichel and the impact it has on us. Um, and until now, we've been working with Rabbi Rucham. There's another incredible work called Torah Avram, which is a work from Rabbi Avram Gojinsky, who is Mashkech in Slabotka. He's also in the line of the great Baal uh, Musa. He was a Mashkech in Slabotka, which was one of the most foremost Musa yeshivas. And he was also the father-in-law of, of Ravaldi. Um, so an incredible, incredible man. He perished in, I think it was the Kovna Ghetto. Um, and there's like a lot of, um, I mean, he's, there's a description over here of, um, of how when he was in, when he was in the, in the ghetto, there would be selections where they would tragically, literally choose people to, to move from one side to another, which would mean life or death. And, you know, one can imagine that the incredible fear that one would experience in that, in that line to know if you're going to live or die. And he was in that line many times. And when he was selected to live, instead of feeling relief and happiness, he was stricken with pain about all the people who were on the other side of the line. Now that's incomprehensible. That's incomprehensible, but that's the person, and that's what we're really trying to do. If we, if we work on ourselves, through Derek Hamusa, we're trying to, each person with their own background and their own medicine, their own past, that's what we're trying to really do. We're trying to, trying to build, up, build ourselves and change ourselves, and that's, that's, a, that's a lifetime of work. But when we look back to the generations of how they did it, uh, the subtlety, and uh, this is the irony, like, like this Rolf who spoke about this, a person who has no emotional depth will literally think that the Bailey Musa are making it up as they're going wrong. It's a little bit like a person who is, um, the person's blind and you start to discuss colors and he thinks everyone's blind. And he has you speaking about colors, he'll just think that you're making things up as you go along. People are emotionally blind or deaf or dumb. So when you speak to them about the subtle emotional movements, they will literally not know what you're talking about. They will think that you're making it up. Because just like there's intelligence, there's also emotional intelligence. The person is not emotionally intelligent. So what to one is obvious, to another is fictitious. Um, so what we're trying to do is build that depth. There's a story about Rabbi Israel that he said um, he was very scared to go going to a rich person's house because of the influence it would have on him as a kind of looking for a more materialistic lifestyle. And uh, once Rosh Shiva overheard him, he said, Baruch Hashem, he says, I don't have that problem. And he says, one thing you know about that person, he has a problem. Because, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you think you don't have that problem, that means you're absolutely blind to what's going on in yourself. So this subtle awareness of, of who you are as people is the, is the legacy of the Bali Musa. Emotional intelligence is 
the ability to read the situation by being cognizant of the way that I work emotionally and the person around me works emotionally. So just to give you a few illustrations, a child who is still developing in emotional maturity will not see the impact of his words on another or the impact of his actions. So when he hits or screams or he's not taking the consideration that this is impacting another person because he can only see his own world. And even his own world, he doesn't understand. He can't uh, deconstruct the reason for his anger. As we mature, we meant to be able to get a better handle on those emotional movements inside of ourselves. And the person said, as he matures, emotional intelligence would allow him to be able to locate the origin of his sadness and understand its trajectory. If he's angry, he'd be able to plot where that anger came from and the way he expressed itself to the details of where in his body he feels it and how it distorts his words, etc., etc., etc. To give you a few examples, uh, some examples, let's say, from, from my own personal life. Right now, I'm, I'm involved in a very stressful um, story. Uh, details are necessary, but it's, 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 it's heightened my level of stress. So the heightened level of stress, which I'm so aware of, will manifest not only in the area of the person that I'm interacting with, the people that I'm interacting with, but it will also spill over into every area of my life. So if, uh, for example, Ari Jackson, Ari Jackson decides to make a comment in the Muslim, so my, report, my, my retort to him will be deeply influenced by my present emotional state, and I may be far harsher and unfairly um, vindictive against him. It has nothing to do with him. It's got to do with my emotional movements. So I'm, con- I'm very conscious of that. And I'm conscious of the fact that I'm doing it, not because of him, but because of my own personal issues. That consciousness is just stage one. The heightened advanced state is to graduate from the consciousness to the control. And that requires work and that requires interaction. That requires, for me, possibly an internal dialogue to be able to distance myself from the... Um, the, the emotional control that floods me and I can't therefore respond appropriately to the situation. Uh, I hope that clarifies emotional intelligence. So that's what this is all about. Rebavar um, Gorzinski writes a Seyfical Torah of Rome, which is literally one of the most insightful and brilliant sparring I've ever had the privilege to come across. And he has a series of essays. And I thought this would be so appropriate for us to look over here after seeing how much uh, Rabbi Yochum had to say about this and um, see what he has to say. And he, his approach is very much, I think, aligned to Rabbi Yochum. And he starts off by saying similar to what Rabbi Yochum said about Chumash Parashas, how it's really just stories about how people interacted. But he quotes Rabbi Nisim Gon who's a, one of the Goenim at the, the period of sages before the Rishonim. So in probably the, the 900s, 800s, before the turn of the first millennium. And he, the Nebnissim Goen asked Akasha, there's a big machloik as how many mitzvahs uh, Adam Rishon had 
and subsequently how many mitzvahs um, the Bnei Noach, Bnei Noach, everyone agrees, is seven, but beforehand there was a mitzvah, is it six, is it one? Everyone agrees that there were certain mitzvahs which they were not commanded on. For example, the issue of what's called Hachchot which um, would be translated in the modern terminology of unnecessary ejaculation, spilling of seed, masturbation, or um, whatever those sexually not um, appropriate acts are. There's, there's, no, there's no prohibition against that ever given to Adam or anyone else. And the Medrash says that one of the, the generation of the flood, one of the things they did wrong was exactly that. It's called Hashchasazer, which means the destruction of the sea. They did that wrong. And as a result, the Rashi, um, Rashi, um, I think even Chumash points us out, points us out that the the waters of the flood were boiling, and it was a measure for measure. They did a chait, which was the boiling of their blood, their heatedness, and therefore they were judged with heated water. So, Rav Nissen Gorn, quoted by Avram Gudzinski, asked a simple question. He says, we know that you can't be held accountable for something you never knew you couldn't do. You always need a warning. If I come up to the tunnel and I say, you can't come to share anymore, he says, why not? I say, well, because you're late three times in a row. So you can say back to me, you never told me I couldn't come late. And that would be a justified claim because he didn't know the rules. So if you don't know the rules, so then you can't be held accountable for breaking it. No one told anyone in that generation, this is not something you can do. So why be held accountable? He makes the kashi even more severe by reciting the medrash, the potsik in Navi Yecheskel and the medrash, which says, what did... Why were Stoim and Amora? Why were they destroyed? And the major says, well, because they didn't do Chesed. And that's how Rabbeinu Yoyna describes this in the Lashon of the Positive. They didn't hold the hands of a poverty-stricken person. And the Gemara goes into detail how they were actually quite cruel in terms of their attitude towards poor people. They outlawed giving charity. So they weren't they weren't, they weren't nice. No one told them they had to do chesed. None of the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach say chesed. Not there. So how can you hold them accountable for not doing something that no one told them that they should have been doing? Another example. Amon and Moab. An Ammonite and a Moabite cannot, even if they convert into Judaism, they can never marry, not them or their generations forever, into the Jewish people. And the reason is because when the Jews were leaving Egypt, they didn't come towards them with food and water. Well, you can ask yourself, okay, but let's look about who those Jews were. Those Jews were people that had just gone through the desert. They were being fed by the manna. They were being um, given water from the bear of Miriam. They lacked nothing. So it wasn't that they were starving. They were completely self-sufficient. And Amun and Moab were held accountable in such a severe way that they're completely isolated from ever becoming a part of Christ Israel because they, didn't be, they weren't forthcoming. Who told them they had to be forthcoming? Where does it say? No one, no, one, no one gave them that directive. So Rabbi Nissan Gwan concludes from this that there's a whole range of mitzvahs which a person doesn't need a commandment for. And he calls them mitzvahs sikhlias. Those are things that can be derived from our seichel. 
And those things are way more incumbent upon us than what he calls the Mitzvah Shmiyos. Kilayim Shatnas, Basa B'cholov. As we've said in the words of Israel, of, of Rebucham as well, that something which I could have figured out is inappropriate. And I don't too has a greater level of severity than something which I am told to do. And it's not, it's not, it's not, it wouldn't have been possible for me to derive it from my own seichel. And he says this very powerful line. This is the way he says it. Hashem gives us wisdom from his mouth, das and tuna, integrated understanding, whatever, I don't know those words don't lend themselves to an English translation. Says the Rebbe Avraham, when Akash created man, he implanted in him this incredible wisdom. The purpose is so that a person uses it. The Havin to understand, the Haskil to enlighten, and to navigate his path in life. And the deed that he needs to do. Look at his Lashen. Who Nivra, he's created. The Sefer Torah Imoy. And he's got an internal, inbuilt, integrated Sefer Torah. Also, the Kim is Adam Yashar, Omakredes. Hashem made a person straight. And we have to guard that straightness. And to do and to guard everything that our Seichel commands us. And when you transgress that, you're transgressing the Torah. And therefore, the mitzvah of a, the, the onish, the consequence of transgressing, as it were, what our understanding tells us to do is more severe because it's something which is an intrinsic part of what a person is. It's not external, it's internal. So that's, uh, that's an incredible reinforcement of not only in, in the, you know, in your Biochum, he said, but you look at it and you see it's, it's something which, which he then goes on and we'll, we'll maybe move it forward with this. He then goes on to say, and therefore that's, that's the legacy of humanity as a whole. That's not even just talking about Jews. That's talking about every human being has this elevated power to understand. And therefore, if you go back and you think, what did Amoin and Moab do wrong? So, well, what should have they done? Listen to this. They see a nation. The nation has just been rescued in a miraculous way. The sea has been split and they've walked through it. They've been fed with heavenly bread and miraculous water in the desert. And this nation comes before you. They've been blessed with an incredible stature. What does your seichel tell you how you should relate to them? The seichel tells you they deserve respect, they deserve honor, they should be treated with incredible kindness. And what do you do? You go towards them um, to make war or to not at least extend your hospitality. 
What is that? That's breaking the law of logical deduction of how you should appropriately respond in that situation. Ralph? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's more than that, though, because they're, I don't, not sure, I think it's their ancestor lot. They, they were meant to show Akarasatov towards, uh, they owed Akarasatov towards Abraham and his descendants. Um, the Gemara says, the Gemara says, Okay, well, it could be that as well. But this is the, the Gemara's thing is that they did, what, what, what's wrong with that? So look at the, the final sentence of Rabbi Avram. This is the reality of a person, the way a person should be. So anything you can derive from Seichel, you become obligated to do it. And you become responsible if you transgress it. And the more obvious it is in terms of our Seichel, so too will the consequences be more dire. And that's what it means that a person is beloved because he's created B'Tselem Lekim. Your chokma is a godly chokma. So now, Rebbe Avram goes a bit further than Rebbe Yuchim. In the world of Rebbe Yuchim, we're focusing more on the nature of seichel in terms of, I suppose, we'd, we'd loosely refer to as rational, logic, ability to reason and understand. Rebbe Avram pushes the bar just a little bit further. And he says that within the workings of seichel, it's not only the um it's not only the rational and the logical it's also what we call the moral and the ethical because if you think about it Amon and Moya's response or Stoim's lack of chesed that's not logic you know you could logically defend the fact that if the immigrants on boats coming towards your shores you should turn them away I'm not referring to any particular nation at this stage of the game. That's, that's logical. You know, you can, you, can, you can logically defend that if a car is parked more than 35 centimeters away from a curb, so it should get an exorbitant fine. You can logically defend that if your neighbor's dog inadvertently messes on the floor, um, you should have the dog confiscated and put in the compound. There's, there's logic to all those things. But there's a vast difference between logic and you call it midas or a certain sense of ethical sensitivity or, or morals. Or, and it seems that the direction that Rabbi Avram is going in is not only do we have as a natural component of our being the ability to understand, to extrapolate the logical laws. Uh, if I go into the sun, and my skin is exposed, my skin will get burned, and therefore there's a halacha that I have to put on sunscreen. Not only that, but even the sensitivity to, for example, gratitude and um, honor, if someone is elevated, so you have, to, you have to appreciate them. Now, those laws aren't logical. Those laws are ethical. And the fact that the generations that were not commanded on ethical behavior are held responsible means not only do we have an intuitive awareness of um, logical cause and effect, but we even have an intuitive awareness of ethical cause and effect. 
So, so Ken and Ryan have like put a question to the Olam about uh, if you look around the world, so then you actually see that a lot of these so-called ethical laws are definitely not being respected. And the whole notion of uh, respect of elders, for example, is, is, is no longer, you know, the, the modern world seems to be dissolving in terms of these, what Rebbe Vaughan would refer to as basic ethical um, premises, which would mean that the basic, the world is, is, not, is not aware, is not listening to, is not obeying it, even though they're remnants. I mean, there are remnants. You see the remnants. You see that there's a huge move to, um, you know, let's say in Europe, to, to house Syrian refugees in Canada. Because there's a sense of, we are, well, these people are suffering. What do I owe them? The answer is, no, we understand that that's what we should be doing. Now, you could argue that there's a distortion, but you see that there's, there's a notion of political correctness, that you have to, even in the way you speak, be considerate of other people. The remnants of this morality which split up, but there's obviously not a consistency and a coherence, and many times it gets thrown off. So, for example, um, one would think that fidelity to a spouse is, is, is a huge, huge thing. Yet, in the modern world, um, you know, cheating is a, is, a, is, is a common, unfortunate practice to the degree that I use the word cheating, which is a verb which describes all dishonest behavior but it has a specific connotation in terms of adultery in marriage, which is really interesting. So really what Rabbi Abraham is suggesting is that before a person would even learn a text or learn a philosophy, the simple process of becoming in touch with his own internal self would already give him a completely different perspective of the world around him in life. And that's, and that's going along, it's taking Rebuchim just one step further. Not only do you use this gift of Seichel to develop an understanding of that the world is telling us messages constantly about how Hashem wants us to approach things, but there's actually also a content, not only a, um, a hardware component, but there's a software component to the way that our uh, our brain, or the notion of the Rebbeinism is quite beautiful. He says that when you ask the Kasha on all these things, or the Dora Mab will be punished, etc., he says, I'll read it for you. Um, mitzvahs which are depend on Svara, which is rational thinking, and then he adds in another two words. And the understanding of the heart. That's quite an interesting thing. That there's this thing called lave. There's the Havonis Binasalev, which is going to be perhaps the other component that Rebbe Rucham doesn't emphasize. So I thought that's a nice new um, direction that we should possibly start exploring now and seeing how, where that takes us. Um, I think we're in our time. So I want to wish you all a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos. And um, look forward to seeing you all again. The help of Hashem. Thank you, Rob. Morning. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rob.